you beautiful bastards. Hope you have a fantastic Thursday. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, hit that like button. And actually, a quick note before we get started. If you want to snag yourself some awesome and support the show, we actually have some new launches and some restocks at shopdefranco.com. For restocks, we have the One Day Will All Be Skeletons Varsity hoodie. And for new stuff, we have the Skeletons Lounge Pants. You just look at that photo. Look at how the lounging is enhanced. That's easily, and this is just me, this isn't science. I mean, that looks easily like 70% better lounging. As well as the Have a Great Holiday Ugly Shirt. And finally, to keep those feet comfy, warm, and also stylish, we have our, uh, <laughs> let's jump into it and have a great holiday socks. If you want to snag those, of course, it's first come first serve. I also threw a few things on sale. But yeah, with that said, let's just jump into it. And the first thing we're going to talk about today is a story around news, and more importantly, how it's covered. And specifically, I'm talking about this news coming out of Northwestern that it's been really interesting to watch everything develop. So this all started last week when Jeff Sessions, Trump's former attorney general, spoke on their campus. Right, that's something notable on campus, so the school student paper, the Daily Northwestern sent reporters to cover his speech, as well as students who were protesting it. And according to reports, protesters were pushing through the back of the building. Police tried to stop them from entering, but ultimately failed. And these series of events were documented by one of the reporters, Colin Boyle, who is a photographer for The Daily. And following this, some of the activists protesting disagreed with The Daily's coverage of events, some particularly upset about the photography. Boyle tweeted some of the photos that he captured from the protest, and some students found this to be inappropriate, with one tweeting, Colin, please can we stop this trauma porn? I was on the ground being shoved and pushed hard by the police. You don't have to intervene, but you also didn't have to put a camera in front of me top down. As a fellow photographer, I know how this works and 20 other ways to document this. Right, and so after facing this kind of backlash from protesters, what we ended up seeing is that on Sunday, The Daily posted an editorial apologizing for their coverage. With some of that reading, we recognize that we contributed to the harm students experience, and we wanted to apologize for and address the mistakes that we made that night, along with how we plan to move forward. One area of our reporting that harmed many students was our photo coverage of the event. Some protesters found photos posted to reporters' Twitter accounts re-traumatizing and invasive. Those photos have since been taken down. On one hand, as the paper of record for Northwestern, we want to ensure students, administrators, and alumni understand the gravity of the events that took place Tuesday night. However, we decided to prioritize the trust and safety of students who were photographed. They also addressed concerns about them using the student directory to contact students who attended the protest, saying that they now recognize it as an invasion of privacy and promised to find a new way to reach sources, as well as their choice to remove the name of a student initially quoted in an article. And there is part of the reason they note that Northwestern does not give student protesters amnesty, so using that student's name might get them in trouble down the road. And adding, going forward, we are working on setting guidelines for source outreach, social media, and covering marginalized groups. And so this editorial ends up getting a lot of attention, not only from local, but also national news outlets. And so as this gets bigger, there are more eyes on it. We start to see a number of people saying that the Daily should not have apologized because essentially they're apologizing for doing their job, which is reporting on and capturing the real events that take place on their campus. And so throughout the week, you know, because this has sparked an online debate of, you know, the role of a student journalist or a journalist in general, we've seen organization after organization deliver their take. We saw the Chicago Sun-Times say, The Daily is apologizing for posting photographs of protesters at a public demonstration. In what world is that invasive? The real concern for anybody who cares about the state of our free society should be quite the opposite. The real concern should be the frequent efforts by government to keep journalists and protesters far apart, to tamp down voices of dissent. Also defending the student journalists for using the directory as a means to contact sources by saying, requesting an interview via text or any other polite means is not an invasion of privacy. Not even in the world of campus safe spaces. It's a request for an interview to which anybody can say no. We also saw Guy Benson, a Fox News contributor who actually got his degree from Northwestern speaking on the matter. And it was sort of grovelingly apologetic for doing the sin of journalism. They committed journalism by asking questions of students, contacting students for comment, publishing on the record, 
quotes from people uh, and taking photographs of public protests from a public event. And that is all just totally proper. We also saw a Huffington Post news editor say, I will say regarding daily Northwestern drama, the best way to learn is to make mistakes. The best place to make these mistakes is arguably in college. Maybe the criticism from professional journalists will help them realize that they shouldn't cower when they are doing their jobs. We also saw the Dean of Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism say, uh, among other things, that the coverage was in no way beyond the bounds of fair, responsible journalism, adding, I am deeply troubled by the vicious bullying and badgering that the students responsible for that coverage have endured for the quote, sin of doing journalism. It is naive, not to mention wrong-headed, to declare, as many of our student activists have, that the Daily staff and other student journalists had somehow violated the personal space of the protesters by reporting on the proceedings, which were conducted in the open and were designed ostensibly to garner attention. And as for the Daily's editorial itself, he called it heartfelt, though not well considered, adding, I understand why the Daily editors felt the need to issue their mea culpa. They were beat into public submission by the vitriol and relentless public shaming they have been subjected to since the session's story appeared. I think it is a testament to their sensitivity and sense of community responsibility that they convinced themselves that an apology would affect a measure of community healing. Now, with all of that said, I should note that not everyone thought that the apology was out of line. Some thinking that the Daily needed to address what happened with one student saying, as a journalist, your job is to protect people and always have your audience's safety and best interests at the forefront. Journalists often show their true colors like today. They don't care about people. They care about stories and headlines. We also saw reporter Karen Coe saying that, you know, that we've seen so many journalists speaking about this story and, and it kind of speaks to a problem problem in journalism, saying these journalists are mad in a way I've never really seen with several other issues, such as the lack of diversity in their newsrooms, declines in public trust, or how reporting can further hurt underrepresented communities. Others also pointing out the school's history when it comes to protests, saying the university has a history of punishing student protesters by finding them through photos that have been taken and to publish these photos without reaching out and asking, especially considering this history was irresponsible. Following all of this, we've seen some of the student journalists involved in this speaking out. This including Troy Klassen, the paper's editor-in-chief, who was among the eight editors who signed the editorial, and he publishes Twitter thread, you know, kind of partially justifying the editorial, but also acknowledging overcorrection, noting that with him being the third black editor-in-chief in the Daily's more than 135 years of publication, and that balancing this role with the knowledge that the paper has historically not treated students of color well has been a challenge. Colin Boyle, the, the student photographer that took the photos, was interviewed by the Washington Post, and he kind of walked through what he was thinking while he was covering the protest, saying, these are my peers, these are people that I might have class with. If something happened, God forbid, I was the only camera that was non-police owned in that area to my knowledge. And adding on Twitter, this last week has led to a lot of reflection of what our impact is as journalists and the privileges we as reporters take for granted. This should be a conversation that we all continue to have, not just when we make mistakes. It is up to us to start this conversation and to listen. And that is essentially the story as it is now. And as far as my reaction to this story, I think in no world should they have apologized? Because I really do see this as them apologizing for practicing journalism. Now understand, I am saying this while not at the same time saying, fuck those kids. Right, I'm not going to attack those young journalists. I, I agree with the, the quote from earlier. If there is a time to make mistakes at something like this, it's in college, they're young, they're new. And to the big mainstream journalists that have been in incredibly condescending or personal with their, their attacks, you know, have you made a mistake in the past two years? Did you make a mistake back in college? And I say this because I think it's important in general. I also say it because I know a, a ton of people that have watched the show have gone on to become journalists. You're probably far more qualified to do this job. I also know there are a number of younger people watching right now that want to go on to be a journalist, which I think is incredibly admirable right now since it's so toxic and dangerous out there. You know, at times when you're covering something, there may be a wave of backlash that's so harsh. You 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 even question yourself, not only the, the quality of the coverage, but you're like, were there 
was did I have bad intentions? And you know, I say that as someone who has received criticism, and you know, I look back to some of my older content, and I'm like, oh man, I definitely am guilty of having made some false equivalency. And it's good to have moments of reflection. You, it, you wouldn't be good at what you do if you went, no, everyone else is wrong. I am always right. That doesn't just mean you then cower to the mob, then you become part of the problem. But unfortunately, based off of a piece that came out in the Washington Post today, written by Zach Kessel, who's a freshman at Northwestern University, where it says he writes as an opinion columnist for the Daily Northwestern, he described a situation where staffers talked about how the old media is dead and that because most of the notable critics of the statement write for legacy print publications, the Daily must be doing something right. But with that said, if there is a way for me to end this story, it's actually something that Zach himself wrote. Finding out the truth intrinsically involves conflict. If readers, writers, and editors can't tolerate that conflict, we're in trouble. But yeah, that's the story, some of my takeaway, and now, of course, I pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts on this? Whether you agree or disagree with me, I, of course, love to hear from you. And then, let's talk about this, this dust-up that seems to be based off of a very silly thing. And if you're not familiar, since 1985, every year, People Magazine names a sexiest man alive. And this is a very important topic, because as we all remember that famous quote, if it's not in People, it's not real. I think it was Malala that said that, but main point, it's a thing that happens, and inevitably, we kind of see the same thing. A bunch of people respond, yes. And then then a bunch of other people respond, are you blind? Idris Elba is still a person that is alive. Or whoever you think. For my wife, it would be Jason Statham, since apparently she's attracted to literally the opposite to me in every way. And this year, they announced that the sexiest man alive was John Legend. An announcement that resulted in a lot of the expected reactions. And on the inside of the magazine, they also had other winners, sexiest insert smaller category. And that's because, and hopefully you're, you're cynical enough to realize this, it, this is really just the, the merging of how can we clickbait people that are really popular so they promote to our article and, and publicists doing their job. That said, the, the reason that this story actually stuck out to me is the legal situation around it. So in addition to this being an annual cover for the magazine, they actually have the registered trademark for it. Right, so this is not some kind of just random silly thing thing to them. And in fact, a report came out alleging that after Us Weekly decided to launch the real Sexiest Men Alive, allowing readers to vote on who they thought was the sexiest, reportedly a source at Us Weekly's publishers, American Media Inc., confirmed the lawyers had been in touch and told Page Six they hoped to have everything sorted out amicably soon. And it seems potentially legitimate because when you go to the polling page and when you go to when they announced the winners, uh, both of those pages are down now. Which is why today we will not have the first annual Sexiest Man Alive award on this show. I'm not looking to be sued. And instead, today I will be awarding the first annual Coolest Bro Ever award to David Dobrik. <laughs> And I mean, there were a lot of contenders this year, but you, but you look at David Dobrik and you're like, look at the, the, the size of his subscriber base, the inspiring way his face fits in the thumbnail, and the charming nature of all the views it might bring me. So yeah, congratulations and, and better luck next year to all the other bros. And then let's talk about this situation that has just blown up over the past 24 hours. Right, and all the outrage with this situation involves an incident that happened on Wednesday at Bark and Bitch's Dog Boutique, a business that describes itself on its website as LA's first humane pet shop. A Twitch user by the name of Rip Royce, real name Royce Thomas, happened to be live streaming at the shop and she caught a disturbing incident on camera. In a clip from the stream, which has just shocked so many people, we see one dog begin to bite at a smaller puppy. And then we see this happen. <laughs> Right, so we see the employee in question separating them by aggressively grabbing the back of the dog's neck, then throwing it. We don't see how the dog landed, but you know, you hear that hard thud, people gasping. Afterwards, you see the dog visibly shaken by the throw, hiding under a nearby bench. And when witnesses go over to console the animal, they can be heard saying that it landed on its head. Now, following this, Thomas told ABC7 that she never saw the employee again after the incident, also adding that another employee came to hold the dog and tried to calm down customers. And according to Thomas, some of the people in the store and some of her followers have contacted the police about the incident. Now, of course, with more people seeing the clip, 
it has sparked a lot of outrage, people calling for the employee to be fired or charged. Following that, we saw the pet shop post a public apology later that night with its owner writing, my deepest apologies for this incident. The dog was playing and acting normal after this horrific incident. She was taken to the vet and was cleared 100%. We are grateful, and then including the hashtag inexcusable. And also adding, we will not tolerate this or any actions that put our rescues in harm's way. The appropriate actions are being taken. This is not what we stand for. And a few hours later, the owner followed up with a video where she said, I do want you to know that the employee is uh, no longer with us and um, that the dog is actually doing fine and did go to the vet. Right, and so some people were happy to see that, although a number of the top comments on that video were people angry at her. People questioning their hiring and training practices, which I would say, sure, hiring practices, uh, training. I mean, I think it's pretty common sense you don't throw a dog. Like, I don't have a training program for my employees where I'm like, don't set your coworkers on fire. Right, it feels like that's just a thing that should be understood. Right, but that said, I really do hope that the police get involved. They find the person who just decided to abuse an animal like this. Yeah, uh, that was a thing, and, uh, let that be, I guess, your kind of one of many daily reminders that sometimes people are just horrible garbage people. And then let's talk about Venice, Italy, because right now the city is experiencing their second worst flood since they started recording floods almost 150 years ago. Right now, as of recording this video, 85% of the city is underwater. We saw water levels peaking at just over six feet, just a few inches shy of the record, which it is important to note that floods in general are not rare. In fact, floods tend to happen this time every year in Venice. And part of that is because if you know anything about Venice, you know it's full of canals and water, Waterways. It's actually built in a lagoon that borders the Adriatic Sea. And at the same time, Venice is a very low-lying city. It only sits about three feet above sea level. And on top of that, Venice is sinking at a rate of about a fifth of an inch every year. And in fact, you have climate scientists predicting that the entire city will be underwater by the end of the century. And as far as why they have these yearly floods, which they call the Aqua Alta, generally speaking, they happen in winter. Strong winds push water from the Adriatic Sea into the city. And while Venice does have seawalls to help reduce the flooding, there's actually been a lot of controversy around the city's floodgates. Since 2003, the city has been trying to complete a more than $6 billion project to build 78 underwater floodgates. And the goal of that project and these floodgates would be to temporarily isolate the lagoon from the sea during flooding season. But unfortunately, that project has been largely delayed because it has been plagued by cost burdens and corruption scandals. Right, and so as far as this flood, Tuesday night, it hits. With high winds and tides shoving boats onto the streets. Gondolas on top of bike racks here. A ferry was stranded between two streets. And because you had boats getting slammed against the street, we also saw images like this, as well as stores and hotels flooded. Water just spewing out of toilets as pipes got backed up. Reports of power outages across the city. Also reportedly one 78-year-old man died after being electrocuted by a short circuit in his home. But yesterday, some good news. We did see water levels go down some. However, the, the situation isn't done, right? We're still seeing people using makeshift planks just to get around to certain parts of the city that are under four feet of water. You also have the flood water damaging major landmarks in the city. We had people describing St. Mark's Square as a lake. The flooding also hit St. Mark's Basilica, which along with Venice is part of a World Heritage Site. You had the Archbishop of Venice saying that St. Mark's is now suffering structural damage and that the water is causing irreparable harm. And with this happening, we, we've seen the mayor of Venice kind of talking local, and worldwide. At a press conference yesterday saying, Venice is an emblem of the whole country. We are no longer talking about a local problem, but a worldwide one. And adding, there were people who were crying today because they've lost everything and we're not talking about the poor. The point is that there is no longer certainty. You no longer know how to live. And if we want to repopulate, we want to give certainty. It's the life of the city itself, the future 
of the city. We also had him on Twitter calling for the project to build 78 underwater floodgates to be finished and adding that these floods are a result of climate change. And actually on that note of climate change here, he is not wrong. Like the fires in Australia that we talked about earlier this week, climate scientists have backed up his claim. This because as polar ice caps melt, we're seeing ocean and sea levels rise. Venice alone, city officials said that the sea level is four inches higher than it was 50 years ago. You also have scientists saying we're seeing more extreme weather events, which can make those winter winds blow into Venice even stronger. And all of those factors then produce higher tides that can hit a city that, like we said, is already sinking. And you know, since that record breaking and making flood all the way back in 1966, Venice has almost seen 20 floods peaking at over four and a half feet. And on that note, you had the former head of Venice's Tide Monitoring and Forecast Center saying, the increased flooding is a trend that jibes with extremization of climate. If we look at the course of history, we have documents dating back to 1872, and we can see that these phenomena didn't used to exist. But ultimately, I mean, as far as what happens next, when we look to Venice, we see that schools were canceled yesterday and today. You have the mayor of Venice calling for Italy to declare a state of emergency, which on that note, the Italian government did issue that declaration today. Also today, Italy's prime minister said that the commitment to Venice is total regarding the project, which regarding that project, it is expected to be completed by 2022, with the prime minister saying that he hopes that it could at least partially be in use by then. But ultimately, that is where the story ends today. Unfortunately, stories like this are not going to end. It really does feel, and once again, I've been doing this over over a decade now, th these stories are getting more and more extreme, just more and more undeniably in our faces. And that's where I'm going to end today's show. And hey, if you like this video, share it with a friend or some family. Sometimes it's just worth the reaction. Also, if you're new here and you want to fill your weekdays with my dumb face, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Definitely tap that bell to turn on notifications. Also, if you're looking for more to watch after this video, we have that brand new Rogue Rocket deep dive, or maybe you didn't catch the podcast I did with Eugene Lee Yang. You can click or tap to watch either of those right now. But with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love your faces and I'll see you next time.